you know, you can imagine when you start nagging, you, you we've all been kids, right? <laughs> Your parents start talking and it's like the teacher on Charlie Brown. You start hearing, you don't really hear, right, what the parent <laughs> is saying. And so I decided to come up with three things, <laughs> which in our household are up on a board. It says the Frank family motto. This is Husha. And this is Eric. And welcome to Third Coffee Episode 6. Episode 6. This is, a, this is a professor that is near and dear to my heart that has been with me uh, really from the start of my Darden experience. Mm-hmm. And honestly, she transformed our perspective on tax and its implications today. It turns out tax is interesting, Harsha. <laughs> I didn't think of that before <laughs> we sat down with her over a little over two hours. Yes, a long one, but she gave us a new and very valuable perspective on exactly what she does. And I think you'll love this discussion with Mary Margaret Frank. Awesome. Let's get into it. Mary Margaret Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get started, this is something that we love doing because um, after spending two years at Darden, uh, we have learned a little bit about cold calling. So we're going to turn the tables now, Mary Margaret, and ask you to introduce yourself. And this is our little cold call on Third Coffee. Awesome. Okay. So I'm Mary Margaret Frank. I have been at Darden since 2002. <laughs> so I've been there uh, quite a long time. I uh, My roots go back to North Carolina. So while I am a Wahoo mm-hmm. now, uh, I Wahoo is the UVA fish, FYI. Like <laughs> so we pull it UVA at Wahoo Wah. That's their, you know, the thing they say. Well, I grew up as a Tar Heel. I spent 10 years in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I uh, call myself a triple heel because I have my three degrees from Chapel Hill. Uh, they're all in the business area. And um all business, accounting, accounting. So I have a PhD in accounting. I uh, came to Darden uh, as the tax lady. So I came to Darden to teach both in the core financial accounting area and to set up electives uh, that are specifically related to tax. And now I teach just about anything. I actually say that I am the Jane of all trades um, or all courses. Second year feedback is that the the tax lady has some of the most <laughs> difficult courses, um, but somehow you somehow you threaded the needle, and you're simultaneously beloved while oh. also giving out these these very difficult <laughs> courses, which I think is very difficult to do. It's usually like most things in life; it's about language, right? Uh, I so I'll say I was terrible at foreign languages. My worst grades in high school, as well as college, were um, my foreign languages. And so I just say tax is my foreign language <laughs> and that's the one I'm good at. Uh, and others are good at other foreign well, languages. Well, we were, we were so commenting we're on these scholarly articles you gave us to read in preparation <laughs> and uh, they have a fair amount of foreign language. For real, I have to read at least three times. I was like, wait, yeah. I missed a word. I didn't understand this. What is cause I think? We'll get into all of that very <laughs> soon, very, very soon. But the first question that we always start this podcast with is, you spent a lot of time at Darden. Obviously, okay. you've probably traveled the world and many, many places, hopefully some tax havens as well. 
but what is your most memorable coffee story? <laughs> my most memorable coffee story. So um, I, my most memorable coffee stories, and there are probably multiple, always have to deal with like either spilling it on me or um, yeah, usually it's about spilling it on me because I drop it all the time. But I think, you know, if I think about, there are just so many memorable coffee stories. I think for me um, is the stories that come with the coffee. So just like you all are doing, um, engaging in a really personal way, uh, whether it's a Darden over a cup of coffee or it's going to one of the really amazing uh, coffee places we have here in Charlottesville. We have tons of coffee places in Charlottesville and I love to go and uh, meet students there. And so for me, uh, and it's not just students, right? It's when um, alumni come back and we meet at a, like, it's just sort of a darn thing, right? We meet at a coffee place and being able to catch up uh, on those stories. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I laugh and think about it. I don't know if there's sorry, this is kind of boring, but I don't know if there's one in particular because each one is just a new unique way to connect with the people who've been important, right? Elliot also spilled coffee on himself yeah. and he met his wife. So you have company. That seems to be the thing to do. <laughs> yeah, my uh, fate. Yeah, I laugh because um, I don't, I <laughs> typically try to buy clothes that I don't have to send to the dry cleaners. Um, and one reason for that is because inevitably there's a coffee stain. And that's a pretty, like, as an accountant, I'm pretty cheap. And I hate spending the money <laughs> to send stuff to the dry cleaners. And so when you're spilling coffee almost every day on something you wear, you got to make sure it's wash and wear. <laughs> We're going to transition now, Mary Margaret. We know your time is precious. <laughs> Okay. Um, but how did you come to arrive okay. at Darden? Because I know particularly mm -hmm. for you, it's been a very long winding road. This was definitely not always the plan. Yeah. So um, if you go back, I never intended to be in tax, right? If you look back, like my favorite class in undergrad was art history, right? So I started out actually in high school as a thinking I was going to be an art, uh, art and computer science were the two things that I was really engaged with in high school. And so I sort of went to college thinking I was going to transform the art industry by uh, creating programs that help inventory art and help sell art. So I thought, always thought I was going to go in and manage, uh, in fact, I, I have cups from the Met, but manage the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I spent my summer of my freshman year in New York and nothing against New York, but it just wasn't my cup of tea. So I had to come. Once you realize <laughs> you're not going to live in New York, you realize I can't run the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I got to have another plan in life. Uh, so then I was going to open a Southern art gallery and because uh, folk art was just coming up at that point in time. And I went to go to this presentation. I don't know if any of you are cyclists, but Performance Bicycle is a company that was started out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
And it was started as a mail order business, like a specialty for specialty, like for cyclists, big time cyclists. And it had grown into what it is now, which is you've got lots of uh, stores across the country. And I sat on the front row and eagerly waited to ask my question and raised my hand. And he called on me. And my first question to him was, if you go back to school and take any class over again, what would you take? And without hesitation, I mean, not even a pause, <laughs> he said accounting. And somehow that just changed the course of my life forever. So I went into accounting. And then you get, when you get into accounting, it becomes, so are you going to be audit or tax? That becomes the big question. And I didn't find auditing all that interesting because in North Carolina, you ended up auditing a lot of pig farms. <laughs> And I find that particularly mm. interesting. And so I went into tax because I wanted to be in DC. And uh, it just, uh, and then it's all about how you meet people along the way. I mean, once, once I knew I was going into tax, um, a very influential person in my life appeared, which is he's now, um, his name's Doug Shockford and he's the current Dean at Keenan Flagler. And he was, um, you know, he was a teacher that sort of showed a great passion for the subject and took me down this path that um, I haven't come back from. So you just never know how people are going to influence your life. Honestly, when some of us hear tax or like yeah. want to study taxation, sure. it is incredibly, yeah. incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, mundane. Yeah. You picture the IRS tax collector with his hand out. Mundane. So, seems super difficult. I don't think I'll ever be able to understand <laughs> yeah, what yeah. I'm filing in like all of these forms that I receive. Yeah. Like, did you not? Were you not afraid of getting into this like insanely difficult mm -hmm. space? Mm -hmm. No. Well, one, uh, I like I like things that are hard. I mean, most of my life has been what's the hardest route? Take it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. So um, that's part of it. But I also think it's really about how people, so um, my mentor, uh, when he, he taught my first tax class, and when he taught my first tax class, he had this amazing energy. And what was so unique about and inspired me to go into this was tax wasn't about the law. Tax about the people and how people behave and how you incentivize them, how you meet the needs of a government to then help people. Yeah. So while people think it's this really dry, because what they think of is the code, right? And over, you know, over 15,000 pages in the code, right? Close to, you know, on upwards towards 20,000 now. They think of that. And yeah, that doesn't sound very interesting at all. <laughs> but what's really cool about it is thinking about how you either intentionally or unintentionally affect people's behavior because of a regulation that you've passed. And then, you know, are you also with the law achieving the objectives of a country? So for example, countries need income revenue to pay for things, right? So you may pass a law thinking you're gonna raise a certain amount of revenue but you may not because of people don't behave the way you expect them to. And I found, so just the people part 
The responses mm. to tax is what actually interested me, not necessarily the law. That's why I'm not a lawyer. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the word I was looking for, my <laughs> market was intimidating, but I think you kind of answered that. That that was the word. I was like, what is that word? Oh my God. Now, yes, the 20,000 oh. pages of tax code or whatever is intimidating to say the least. Yeah. When you say that, Mary Margaret, I just think of like the public policy world. It's this million, <laughs> million variable equation that no one's figured out. And you throw something into that, a new input into that equation. It is. And you see yeah. what happens also with oftentimes with completely unintended consequences. And it sounds like you poked and prod at that equation. Um, And there's plenty of equations in the reading. Well, it's never done. Yeah, it's never done. I think that like, I think the thing you realize is it's about thinking through a problem and that lots of time, what's fun about research is you think through a problem and it makes sense, but then along the way somebody or somebody, you know, what you hope to do is say, well, we haven't thought about this and introduce that into the problem and see how it changes the outcome. Um, Because, you know, lots of times the way we think about things gets really sort of locked into a box, right? And so we start believing the world is just like this box, right? But actually what I find is sometimes the world moves on from the box, but our research hasn't. And so, like this constant pushing back and forth between what does the world look like in an idealized setting versus what does it look like in reality is a constant push and pull because the reality, what you're trying to understand in the reality is, is it a one-off, right? Is it something that's just happened once and it's not really, um, not sure the word I'm looking for. It's not, it's not a pervasive phenomenon right? Versus have I got something that is pervasive and meaningful, right? Because lots of times you can look at a situation in reality and think the world is defined by that, but really it's only a one-off, right? And that's why research is nice because research helps you try and disentangle what's dry, like, is it a one-off or is it something that is going to be sustainable? We understand that particularly for your field, the data set is super messy and you're trying to untangle a, a lot of things within that data. But let's, uh, let's transition because along the way, you, you got out of the art game. You might have visited a pig farm or two and decided you didn't want to do audit. But uh, I think along the way, you also started a family. And I absolutely love this, Mary Margaret. Can you tell us about your, your family motto? Uh yeah, so um, I guess the teacher, you know, I went, I'm now more of a teacher than a tax person. And so, you know, my big thing with teaching is that, especially when you're teaching, as y'all pointed out, something that has 14 plus, you know, 15 plus thousand pages, right, is how do you help people walk away feeling like they have something to hold on to? Because when there's too much information, right, there's nothing to grab onto. And so what I try and do when I teach is have words that I use that give people something to hang on. So I'll frame everything around three words, right? Or three ideas so that and everything ties back to those three words or three ideas. So if they get stuck in a situation, they won't remember the little things. They'll remember the three words 
that they anchor on. And then that can help them sort of think through, okay, what is it again that she meant by those three words? So I did that, <laughs> brought that home when I had kids. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you're starting to, when they're babies, it's one thing, right? They don't say much, but as they get older, they say a lot and you end up trying to help them. Uh, I'm trying to think the nice word here is, <laughs> you're trying to help them grow to be good citizens in society, right? And sometimes that requires discipline. Sometimes that requires, uh, you know, nagging. Um, and I felt like the nagging was getting too much. And I just didn't really like the nagging. And, you know, you can imagine when you start nagging, you, you we've all been kids, right? Your parents start talking and it's like the teacher on Charlie Brown. You start hearing, mwah, 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 mwah. You don't really hear, right, what the parent <laughs> is saying. And so I decided to come up with three things, <laughs> which at our household are up on a board. It says, and the three things are resilience, responsibility, and respect. And I felt like the, everything that I was trying to teach my kids that I thought was really important in life fell into one of those three buckets. So if they could remember those three things when they left the home, which one is getting ready to do very soon, that they would have something to anchor on. So we call it, yes, we have a Frank family motto at our house. <laughs> we love it. That's incredibly business schooly too, to have a, a tagline. <laughs> Or, or a mission statement or corporate yeah. mission statement for your family. Well, it's funny you say that. <laughs> it's beautiful. So I, when I teach in class, I talk about my um, <laughs> talk about my corporate entity, which is my household. <laughs> I do talk about it like mm. that. And the different businesses, because my husband has his own business. And then there's, you know, the household, which, you know, I call it the parent company and the subsidiaries that we have. And yeah. And so I just divested of one. So, you know, you never know, mm. I could, you know, maybe we have room for another. I'm trying to simplify. I'm trying to get back to my core mission in my household. So we're simplifying. <laughs> That's right. I love, I love how efficiently you can admonish your children <laughs> by just saying, was that respectful? <laughs> was that responsible? Yeah, in true case method fashion, Eric, it would be, so which one of the three pillars do you think that falls under and why. <laughs> there you go. Who would call your kids? That's right. Yeah. For all those new parents out yeah. there, find a motto and then just put a question on them. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> Empower them to answer their own question. <laughs> um, so the other thing, you mentioned your art, your art background, your, your initial art interest, Mary Margaret. Um, your mother, your professor, your researcher. You were a casual artist, I think, too. You dabbled. Um, mm -hmm. So we were curious. Um, best piece of art you've created mm -hmm. and worst piece of art you've created. Ooh, so I have, so I have several up in my house. Um, I don't know if it's the best or not, but I think one of the most interesting ones I did was in college and it was, uh, I, I was assigned it in an art class. And what's really ironic about it is it reveals actually, it revealed a lot to me about what I portray. And uh, so 
or what I signal to people. So I was in this art class and I was not an art major at that point. I took it my senior year. I was in business school, right? And one of the final projects, the art teacher assigned each of the students an artist. So she gave me Chuck Close. And Chuck Close is, uh, if you go look at Chuck Close's stuff, what he does is he grids out the canvas, okay? And then he paints with his thumb. He, he paints with thumbprints. And so what I did was a self-portrait. It's actually hanging in my house of myself, um, my senior <laughs> year, and it's painted with my thumbprint. <laughs> <laughs> and I had black thumbs for probably a month. <laughs> so that's probably I'm surprised that UNC, UNC with their foot logo, you didn't put your whole foot on there and create yeah, a, no, a portrait that foot. way. That would be the next evolution. Yeah. It would have, it, it was, well, it was a, what it signaled to me is the fact that she picked that kind of artist for me clearly showed I was signaling something about being like structured (laughs) (laughs) relative to the rest of my class. The worst piece. uh, Oh God. (laughs) 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 Oh, so this goes way back. I had this assignment and I'm embarrassed to even talk about it. It was, um, it was this three dimensional box and all I remember it was very morbid like it was painted black and I like had a Barbie doll with her head chopped off or something oh my god (laughs) I mean it was I can't even remember but all I remember is the black box with the Barbie doll with the head chopped off (laughs) and I remember looking at it going does this still exist this is just not this is not like I can't even pass this off as good but, you know, I can't, I can't even remember the sign. I just have that visual and remembering. I hope no one ever sees this. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of turmoil and angst in those high school, those high school yes, years, you know, the manifestation. I mean, Gen Z honestly might like it. You never know. <laughs> just saying. You know, I could try and find it and see if it would sell, you know. Uh, can I ask, let me ask one more sure. quickly. And we'll, we'll only keep this if this is one that strikes you well, mm-hmm. Mary Margaret. So we'll go back to tax. Okay. And Harsh and I just watched the movie Tenet, which is Christopher Nolan's new movie. Oh. And they introduced to us this concept of free ports where you house your, your expensive art collection um, <laughs> in an airport because they have special, they're basically a tax haven for your special art and you view it within this free port within an airport. So it prompted us, do you have a favorite <laughs> tax, do you have a favorite tax loophole or tax haven country? Um, something strange for <laughs> searching here. Uh, one of the reasons that I moved in to teach other stuff is the notion that it's a us versus them, right? It's a zero sum game, right? Uh, so this isn't directly answering your question, but 
yes, I teach people at about tax havens and how they come about and how people use them. But I don't suggest whether that's right or not. I think that's an ethical dilemma that people have to address. And so, um, like, when I teach the, these type of unique structures, I think one of the things I think about is what's interesting to me about the structures is what benefits, like, what what needs does it meet right so going back to people if you think about all the stakeholders right what needs does it meet what cost does it bear on other people right and what are the ethical dilemmas and the risk associated with it um and so to me that's if you going back to the very first question you asked me that's what makes tax cool is that it's a way to explore, it's not about tax necessarily, it's a way to explore how you meet people's needs, how you impose costs on others, how you get creative to engage in transaction that might create win-wins. And when you don't, what are the ethical dilemmas that you run into? So I don't have a really good answer for you on that specific one um, because I don't find any of them, like I find all the de deals and the place is fascinating because it's about how we come together and and I don't uh, I don't know if pro I don't know if problem solves the right word. To me, it's just about it creates interesting settings where people have to deal with interesting problems. Got it. That so it's. I love how you put that together saying tax is not just about like the, you know, collecting the money of the revenues and what have you, but like who it affects. And immediately I was thinking of the Apple tax that's in the news right now with Apple charging, like all of its um, third party apps and all of its users, 30%. And that in a sense impacts the developers, the companies, it impacts innovation. And there's a lot of you and cry about who else it impacts. And there's something yesterday um, in the news about how, it's actually stifling creativity because um, people are just now, you know, averse to putting anything on the app store because Apple is collecting this huge tax and they're justifying it by saying that they're a closed ecosystem and actually adding value. So that, uh, that just yeah, made me think of, yeah. you know, how tax is just um, fungibly used across different aspects. Yeah. So fee and tax are the same thing. <laughs> mm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Agreed. So in a nutshell, you can you can find tax everywhere and anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I think with that, we're going to transition, Mary okay. Margaret, uh, to the long tour. And this is where we delve into your specific research. I know Harsh and I personally needed coffee to uh, <laughs> to digest these research articles you blessed us with. Um, particularly the one you were a co-author on, um, the 60-pager. Um, <laughs> yeah, so thank I was you. intending for you to read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we, we got through most of it. I think we pulled out the most salient points, um, and this will be a great test of that. So okay. I first want to level set Mary Margaret um, because we're talking about corporate tax rate today, which is – I think perpetually a hot button issue in politics. It's something very easy for people to latch onto. Um, 
And I think the intuitive thought is that, hey, if I raise the tax rate 1%, the corporation, let's say Coca-Cola, they pay that additional 1% out of their top line earnings and then operations resume as normal below that. The business is fundamentally unchanged. They just take that extra drop out of the bucket. But tell us, it's a little more complicated than that, is I think what this first article says. Tell us what actually happens um, when you raise that tax yeah, rate. Yeah, so the way I like to think about it is uh, corporations don't pay taxes, people pay taxes. And so I think every time I hear somebody say, well, corporations need to pay more taxes. I just think that's, I think if I could say one thing, it'd be that's way too simplistic. Um, and so you'll hear a lot in the debates about, well, it's not fair that corporations aren't paying taxes or they're not paying their fair share of taxes. And that just honestly doesn't make sense to me because as I said, just said, corporations don't pay taxes, people pay taxes. And so the question becomes, if you go back, if you want to think about it from a stakeholder perspective, who are the stakeholders and that make up a corporation that would pay the taxes? So who are the people that are the stakeholders that make up, um, that would pay? And you can think of three possible stakeholders. Three. Yeah, it's, everything's about three. I'm sure there are more, but let's start <laughs> with three, okay? Uh, good catch. Uh, so there are the shareholders or what we'll call capital providers, right? There's uh, employees, which we'll call labor. And then you might argue uh, consumers of the products, right? Those are the three groups that are stakeholders you might think about. The shareholders, the capital providers, it would be they pay the tax. To your point, when you talk about there's it basic, your scenario was we do the business, we pay more taxes, the corporation pays more taxes. And so therefore at the bottom line, we're left with less income. So that would mean if that were the world, that would mean that the capital providers or the shareholders um, paid it. Okay? But it's possible actually that the way, because of different market forces, the, what actually happens is wages decline and if wages decline because of the corporate tax, then it's not the shareholders who pay the tax, it's the employees who pay the tax, right? And then the third one would be, well, given certain different market conditions, maybe it's that we raise prices okay, to cover the tax liability that we're going to uh, have to pay to the government. And if that's the case, then the consumers would bear the corporate tax, not labor or shareholders. So what I think, and this is actually the part I think is fascinating about tax, right? Is it's not just, it's not so simple. It's not just, oh, corporations pay tax. You've got to look at the entity, the humans that make up the entity and go deeper to a deeper level and ask who, who, what humans pay that tax? Yeah. And if I was to boil it down, I guess I'm picturing people People think that when you raise the tax rate, the government hands reach, reaches into the monopoly man's pocket and grabs a dollar. Um, but what actually happens is the monopoly man translates that tax down 
through his business in the form of lowering wages, potentially raising prices. And that's an oversimplification, Mary Margaret. But that, to your point, again, it, the, the ripple effects of a tax increase are more far-reaching than I think yeah. uh, Harsha and I or the general public yeah. um, can imagine. Yeah, and I think it's changed over time. This is the part I mean about um, the way we think about it and the theory we think about it and how things have evolved over time. And I think what I mentioned, it's all about the assumptions that you make. One of the driving assumptions, there are lots of assumptions, but one of the driving assumptions is, are we in a world, and this is the language, right? Where what they call a closed economy versus an open economy. And we don't need to get into all the details about that, but basically closed is the United States deals with the United States, right? Versus- right. 1940s, 50s America. Um, but as globalization has happened, right? We are trading, we are working, like money can move across borders. We can do foreign direct investment across in different countries. That has no barriers, right? That becomes an open economy. And we're not enclosed or open, we're somewhere in between. But over time, I would argue, we've gone more and more to an open economy. And one of the implications when you move to an open economy is that labor bears more of the burden from a corporate tax than shareholders. And so I'm not saying that's truth or not. There are lots of assumptions. And I think, you know, and people debate this point because it's really important. People can have differing views, but I think that, um, I think on average, we would argue that this assumption that corporate taxes are borne only by shareholders is not reality that if we raise corporate taxes, some of it, the question is, how, the real question is how much is borne by labor? Hey, Margaret, one thing that you mentioned was about this openness of the economy and basically this line in one of the articles you sent us, which is capital is more mobile than labor. Um, and you just mentioned that right now. So can you sort of break down how exactly mobility of capital um, internationally overseas effectively results in more tax burden okay, on so labor. If capital can move, right? So let's say the U.S. raises its corporate tax rate to 35%. We're making widgets, okay? And in every country, you could make widgets, okay? When you make the widget, the return on that is, say, 10% across the world, Right? So then when the United States comes in and raises the corporate tax rate, let's say it goes from zero to 35%, all of a sudden the people who provided the capital, the shareholders and are making less in the US for making widgets than they would if they were in a different country. And so Good. if capital's mobile, meaning I don't have to stay in the US, and there are no barriers to me as a U.S. invest, like a U.S. capital provider, providing the capital to somebody in Germany, then I will take it and I'll just go make widgets in Germany. Assuming, right, people in the U.S. don't care whether it's made in the U.S. or Germany, then they'll just buy the German widgets, right? So then the question becomes, oh, well, we've moved all the production to Germany. I, the shareholder, 
right? I'm going to get the same, like, we're not paying corporate tax now that we're in Germany, okay? But who suffered was we just moved the plant to Germany. Labor suffered. Labor in the U.S. suffered. Does that make sense? So by capital being yeah. mobile and being able to move to do exactly the same thing, but do it in a different country, right? And it didn't affect the market for the product because people would, there were no constraints on importing from Germany. And so I can get, still get the product, right? Then who's left over to hold, hold the bag, if you want to think about it like that, is labor because the plant moved to Germany. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And how that, I, I think how it was described is the plant leaves, there's still the same demand from laborers for jobs. There's less supply of jobs in the U.S. And conversely, labor bids down the price. Yes, that's the extra step. They bids keep taking it to wages. Their wages. Yes. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So they implicit they implicitly bear the burden of this tax. Again, we're we're dealing with messy data, like you mentioned, but I think there's estimates of labor bears fifty to seventy percent of corporate tax somewhere within that band. Agreed. In an open economy, yes. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I think right. it's pretty. I mean, now we only read one article, right? And so, if we'd read another article, who knows what you know, they would have said? But in the article we read, the you're right. The boundaries based on a ton of different assumptions and ways of looking at it, it seemed to fall between 50 and 75. Follow up to that would be, we, you, you gave us an example of raising taxes, right? And one of the papers, there were, there were two schools of thought in relation to corporate tax cuts, which is one is it will help workers improve wages and employment because capital potentially stays in the country. And then the opposite is that, hey, if you reduce taxes, it only results in windfall gains for the shareholders. And so, and I, and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these seem like two ends of like a spectrum that people make decisions on, like either politically or economically. And so how do you go about weighing the pros and cons? What's the trade-off in each of these schools of thought? Yeah. So if I go back to the conversation we were just having, right? Um, this is the problem with politics, right? Is that it's, it becomes extreme when actually the answer is in, in between. And we're not having particularly great discourse about the in-between when the in-between is really the reality. When you hear this notion that if we lower corporate taxes, it's only gonna benefit shareholders, right? And what we just said is it's, the evidence suggests it's somewhere in the middle. And this right. is where the evidence, the empirical evidence is really important because the question is how much? Like, is the corporate tax 50% borne by labor, 30% borne by labor, 75%, right? That actually has a huge implication for policy. And we don't really, we still don't have a general consensus on that, right? And to me, that it would be helpful to know that because then we could really talk better policy, because right now what happens is people just go to the extremes. And I don't think that gets us anywhere. I'm not sure that really answered your question, but. Um... I think you, I think you I did. did. And I think the, I think that in the news, political leaders, we, we love simple stories. We latch on to simple stories. 
unfortunately, the reality is yeah. a 1% dial back of the tax and 1% the other way. You can't predict all the yeah, outcomes. That is exactly right. We don't have enough evidence, right? That leaves room for people to come in and claim on the extreme, right? Um, and that's right. it's just an easier message to convey, unfortunately, are the extremes. Right. Than a, than a 60 page or 20 page <laughs> right. outline, which I won't, I won't make this political, but uh-huh. when I was reading this and this kind of ties into your role in the tri-sector leadership uh, fellows program at Darden is my, my hope is you don't file this paper away and it collects dust. My hope is like the second part of this chain is obviously getting it in front of the people that can impact policy decisions so they can at least be informed. Uh, does that happen That's on Capitol question. Hill? I mean, Capitol Hill is an interesting place. I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, people get all work up about lobbyists and things like that. But one of the things that lobbyists do do is they do educate. If you think about a congressperson or a senator, one of the things that or a representative is what I should say. They've got all these different issues and they can't expect to be experts, right? That's why they have a team, right? And as you talked about with the tax code, it's really complicated. So having people help explain the consequences and being open to hearing different points of view, even if it's not your own, is really important because you may not actually really understand the consequences, right? Like if we get too locked into this is the way tax affects the world, right? What we don't leave open is the possibility that we don't understand somebody else's industry. We don't understand frictions in somebody else's domain that are preventing the world from looking like what we visualize the world to be. And so while there are some things lobbyists do that we would prefer probably not for them to do, one of the things they do is their job is to educate, right? And so what you find, especially on technical matters, um, because they are difficult uh, matters, because otherwise we're just going to have Congress going in and voting based on their preferences, versus what might be best for a country or their citizens. Does that make sense? That that does. And I think one of the bright spots, I mean, obviously we live in a very bipartisan world, but in your paper, you you talk about informing. I, I think one of the bright spots that we latched onto was you explicitly noted that to date, there had just been a lot of thought experiments on the impacts of tax. And we're finally arriving to a place in the 21st century where you're able to start compiling some of this data. And maybe we're still decades away. You already mentioned a million assumptions built into your your model. Um, But maybe we're getting a little bit closer to cracking this million variable equation. Maybe in a decade, we're going to be able to have the data to come in and inform politicians more efficiently. Is that an okay way to think about it? I I do. I think one of the things we have to be careful about though is there's micro analysis and macro analysis. And so we're getting, you know, we're getting more and more data at the macro level, right? But um, one of the things that's hard about tax research is tax return data is 
confidential and only certain people can have access to tax return data, right? It's not like financial accounting data that there's an annual report that's disclosed. And so the problem is, you know, there isn't free, there isn't huge access for lots of different uh, researchers to get in and use the data. You have to have special permission in a lot of cases for some of the more, for some of the more micro data, right? Um, and that makes uh, doing analysis difficult. Um, it also, you know, if you think about it, uh, it also can, I'm not saying the people doing it are biased, but when you have the same group of people doing analysis on the data, you're not allowing different points of view to do analysis with the data. And so it can be, like if we think about we want truth, letting people with a variety of assumptions, a variety of perspectives, analyze the data. If we, we were all to get similar re results, that wouldn't be comforting. When the same group is getting results, you can worry that it's being influenced by a particular agenda. Not to say that, not to say that the research being done is that way. I'm just a big fan of, I wish we could figure out a way to allow researchers more access to micro data. I think it would up the game on the research. Um, so I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, just, just sort of moving away from mm -hmm. the, the corporate piece, yeah. specifically in focusing on the people aspect of things. There was one other line um, in one of the articles that we were reading, which said the, the, the burden of a tax on people's income is more than uh, the revenue that the government takes. And it seems counterintuitive. I think there were numbers where it, I think there was like 200% of tax incidents on people in, in some countries, according to some studies. Could you explain how that works um, and why it, it's actually the case where people are paying more than the government actually takes from them? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way to explain that. Okay. Yeah. What they're saying is it's not one-to-one. -one. That because of other ways that corporate tech tax affects the economy, okay? Like through prices, um, it may have a more dramatic impact on jobs, okay? That it's not one-to-one. -one. So the loss of income to employees or the loss of returns to shareholders, okay? Can be more than that that they raised in tax revenue. I think the there was a couple statistics in the article. I think one was GDP falls $3 for every $1 raised yeah, in tax. That's when I was working off of. And just so we're all speaking the same language, what's GDP stand for, Eric? Gross domestic product. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just got cold called on third copy. That, that would be called a technical question. <laughs> yeah, I feel fortunate I can answer that. I think my brain cell count. It's it's dwindled. <laughs> it's dwindled over this past quarter at Darden, unfortunately. Let's transition. I think we've we have a basic understanding of how movement and tax rate impacts the economy. And there's many assumptions built in. However, there's some ways we're trying to get more creative on how this burden of corporate tax is borne, um, how tax avoidance can be handled. Um Okay, Harsha. Okay, we read this paper which you wrote, and you you talked about 
corporate tax avoidance uh, in that paper. What was your motivation behind delving deeper into that field? Um, and we can break down what exactly you covered in that in that paper as yeah. we talk through that. So I had done several uh, papers on corporate tax avoidance before we got to the paper that you all read. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it was trying to figure out the sources of why people, like why do companies, and when I say companies, I mean management, because uh, again, going back, corporations are people, right? Uh, so what is it that motivates people to engage in corporate tax avoidance? My prior work had sort of said, well, it's about the manager and the manager's you know, decisions and are they aggressive or not? But that didn't explain to me the amount of corporate tax avoidance. It was one reason, but it seemed to me that there was something more fundamental there. And we, we have a tendency to blame management a lot without questioning the incentives we've put in front of them, okay? And, you know, we set up this system and then that'll, that creates opportunities for corporate tax planning. And then we blame managers for engaging in corporate tax planning, okay? That didn't sit right to some degree. And so one of the questions we started asking ourselves is, and trying to find evidence that it's actually the system that leads to corporate tax avoidance versus the people, okay? And if you change the tax system, would you get less corporate tax avoidance? So, you know, that was really where the idea for the, in my opinion, the idea for the paper came from. Um, and so we, we looked around and there is this system called an imputation system. It's not very prevalent anymore, but it was very prevalent, especially in Europe, years and years ago. What's happened over time is the Europeans uh, have moved from a, what's called an imputation system to what we have, which I'll call um, a traditional corporate tax system. And when you look at an imputation system, and I'll explain that in a second, um, one of the things that you come away with is an imputation system under certain circumstances removes a manager's incentives to engage in corporate tax avoidance if what they are concerned about is increasing the returns to shareholders. So I'll stop there and, and see if there's any clarification that needs to be made. I think that's clear so far. And I, okay. I think what you were getting at is in the current system, most managers want to maximize shareholder returns yes. under the current system. The most effective way to do that is by doing some level of tax planning yeah. and tax so if, avoidance. That's right. So if you think about, it's an assumption, okay? that a key driver of management behavior is the demands of the capital markets. I think it's hard to argue that the capital markets don't demand or want higher after-tax returns. So if, that, if you take that as a presumption, if managers, if they're under that kind of pressure from a global capital market, then if, if they reduce corporate taxes, they'll be able to give more returns to shareholders. 
And that is true in a system. And that is true like in a system. US. Like where the we U.S., have what we call double taxation, where we have what we call double where taxation, taxation where there's the taxation level, paid at the corporate at, level and at, at the shareholder again level. at okay. the shareholder level. Um, okay. And what the imputation system and what the imputation system introduced was a different type of system. It was a system, and it was a system where shareholders were not burdened by the corporate tax. And the reason shareholders and the reason shareholders do not bear a burden, a corporate tax burden. Every is because every time a corporation and an imputation system pays corporate taxes, the shareholder gets a credit. The shareholder gets a credit, which lowers their tax. Whatever's paid at the corporate level, whatever's paid at the corporate level, system will in an imputation system will not then be paid at the shareholder level because of the tax credit. If the corporation paid ten dollars in tax, the individual would get a ten dollar credit against their tax liability from the income from the corporation, okay? So now let's now say that the manager then engages in corporate tax planning and reduces the corporate tax to $5. Now the investor only gets a $5 tax credit and they'll have to pay more in taxes, okay? So what was interesting about an imputation system is the more, under certain circumstances, okay, the more the corporation engaged in corporate tax avoidance, the more the individual investor had to pay in taxes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yes, you may have reduced the corporate tax burden, but you increased the investor tax burden. And that's key. So what that system did, though, is by by creating that system, that removes the manager's incentive to reduce corporate taxes, because if it does, the investor is just going to pay more taxes. And that's different from a U.S. system, where in a U.S. system, the lower the corporate taxes are, the more returns the investor gets. So those are two very different systems. And so what you'd expect is that if if what we're discussing holds true, we would find less corporate tax avoidance in countries that had imputation systems than other countries. Okay, that was the bottom line. So that's the research design, okay? And the research design to see if it's about our system is affecting managers' engagement of engaging in corporate tax avoidance. And so the way we push that further is in the EU, there's been a nice change. So in academics, you're always looking for changes and things because you want to test pre-post, right? And so there was a change in the system where a lot of European countries went from having this imputation system to having a system more like the United States. So what we would expect is they were not engaging in corporate taxes before because they had an imputation system, but when they switched to a system more like the US, when their structure changed and allowed the demands of the capital markets to influence their behavior, right? Because now when they went to a system more like the US, corporate tax avoidance allowed them to increase the returns to shareholders. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we tested. Um, so we went and looked. So the big question was, do, do managers increase corporate tax avoidance in countries that go from an imputation system and go to a system where there is incentive, like in the United States? And what we found is, yes, a year after the system switched and they went from an imputation to a more traditional system like this in the U.S., corporate tax avoidance went up. That's the bottom line. And so then you've got, so, this, you got a system, you got this, you've created, and now you're sort of arguing that on an ethical perspective, an managers, ethical should perspective managers should pay taxes. But if they want to be competitive in the global capital market, their shareholders are saying, don't pay taxes. And so to some degree, you're just recognizing the difficult situation that managers are in instead of casting them as bad apples. And so that, you know, to me is just important to recognize. We don't hear it in the public dialogue enough, in my opinion, is, you know, Managers are cast as and these yeah, bad apples, they are in this and yet they are in this situation where they're having to make really difficult trade-offs, given the system that we in the United States have created. Understood. Understood. I'm going to try to distill. I'm going to try to distill that down. I'm going to frame it as if. So I'm in. I'm going to frame it as if. I'm under an imputation system. Under an imputation system. I feel comfortable paying 35 percent of taxes because I know those screaming shareholders. They will get a tax credit if I pay that full tax. If I pay that full tax, and they'll still be happy. So essentially, the tax credit it makes this a single taxation, single level of taxation. Mary Margaret's ecstatic, and Mary Margaret's ecstatic that harshly somehow finally latched on and understood this. Mary Margaret's clapping, thumbs up. She's throwing her hands up in the air. If as a manager, I'm a good actor, I get the shareholders get rewarded because they get a credit for me paying that full tax. Tax, as opposed to the current system in the United States, States, which, which is a double level of taxation, where, level of taxation, manager, where I can't control, the manager, that, bottom can't control that bottom level of tax on but the wait, dividend. I can control this top but wait, level. I can control so this to top level. So to get maximum returns for the shareholders, I better engage in tax avoidance or tax planning to maximize the return before it gets whittled down in this double level of taxation. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Can we Absolutely. clarify? Can we clarify? The first, I think, the shareholders. The first, I think, the shareholders is basically there's this Wall Street twenty four seven machine shareholder that demands shareholder returns. That is the pressure managers and the fine. Can you then define for listeners, Mary Margaret? How does one tax plan corporate tax avoidance? Just examples of tax avoidance, or just examples of how that actually happens in practice as a manager. You ask an interesting question. Well, so you ask. An interesting in question that we debate sort of, in academics is sort avoidance? of what do we right. mean by academics tax avoidance? Is all about right. Academics <laughs> is all about definitions. And so it's kind of funny to think how much time has been spent on definitions, but they are definitions, but degree. they are um, important to some because degree they change um, how you because they change the how you interpret the, the question so for example, and the answer. What I mean by that so, for is, example, what I mean by that is when you say tax avoidance, do you mean things? That you would view as ethically irresponsible, right? So going above and beyond restructuring contracts, um, moving, 
IP moving offshores, IP right? offshores, right? That's one definition, right? And how much you do, you become more aggressive in that tax avoidance, right? But buying buying cash is depreciable, which is depreciable. That also lowers your that also lowers your corporate tax burden. But yet the government passes what they call bonus depreciation, which allows you to deduct your entire capital investment. Is this that year tax avoidance is that so tax avoidance what so sometimes what happens sometimes is the way, sometimes talk is the way we talk about tax avoidance is actually not the way what we I measure mean it. By that is and what i mean by that is when people say tax avoidance what they mean is the extreme which when i when i say extreme i'm going to say the most aggressive but when they go to measure it and say oh corporations are avoiding taxes what they've included in that actually what they've included in that is things that Corporations you know, to do you would expect corporations exactly to do government because that's exactly what the government wants example, them to do. For example, engage in more capital investment. Engage in more capital Those investment. Those are very different. Those are very decisions, different corporate right? decisions, and so, right? And so, talk about, oh, but when people talk about, oh, corporations, don't pay, about, oh, corporations don't pay any tax, between, they don't distinguish oh, between, oh, this is just a normal part of business versus they're engaging in this, this planning that we think Does that goes overboard. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, that there's yes. a line between. Yes, that there's once a again, line between. Once again, I think you could just call corporate tax avoidance acting. Managers acting logically, given the incentives in the system, sometimes they maybe sometimes they overstep those boundaries and act. But right now we don't have the ability to. But right now we don't have the ability to discriminate between those types of behavior. Not in the way that the people who are advocating for the change, not in the data they are using. There are people at the IRS who would have the ability to think through that and engage in that. But a lot of times what's used to make this claim is the financial statements of public companies. And that's a very difficult line to draw. Maybe so this is thing, sort of going maybe this back. is we sort of talked about going back the spectrum of definitions of the spectrum of definitions of corporate tax avoidance. We also talked about we also talked about corporate tax avoidance. Corporate tax avoidance and the difference between is viewed and the difference between like the imputation system versus in, the traditional we, in, system. When we in, in the earlier part of our conversation, we sort of talked about the fact that most people view this as most people view things as extremes, like effect on capital versus as effect on labor, as like the two extreme thoughts, now, or schools of thought. Clearly, the now, imputation clearly, is on one the imputation end. system if is on one end. If, if I were to think of it as a spectrum versus the traditional system. We know now we that middle ground we have to find a middle ground between the two. And if so, what does that middle ground look like? If there were a recommendation, um, if there were a recommendation of, that you had to think not of, reform, to, but not reform, amend, but the, the current system. amend. The, yeah, the current so system. This is why I'll never be yeah, a so this is why I'll never be a politician because um, my recommendation I would never get voted into office. Um so um, I so I have a tendency to think that the capital think markets that are the such capital markets that, are such that I'm going to make an extreme statement. I'm going to make an extreme statement, and then I know my extreme statement is okay. practical. Um, so okay. my extreme um, statement. So is, my extreme statement is it goes back to corporations don't pay taxes. People pay taxes. And so, okay. right. 
And so just tax the people. Um, Mm. Okay. So Um, what you want to do is tax. So if what you want to do is tax tax shareholders, shareholders, just tax shareholders. Raise the tax rate on shareholders. Raise the tax rate Uh, on shareholders. The issue is shareholders. Uh, The issue is shareholders vote. Yeah. Corporations don't vote. Corporations right. don't vote, and so the, right. it's much more and so the, it's much more salient when you raise taxes on, on the shareholders, the shareholders. Okay, if you raise tax, okay, on if you raise tax on the it's corporation, on corporation, and this is the it's whole on point, a corporation, and this is the whole point is you don't know where it's going, where that tax is going to land. It could be through labor, it could be on the shareholders. It's not quite clear where the tax lands. So to some degree, it's not very transparent. If you want to think about it like that, right? But if you eliminate the corporate tax system and simply tax the shareholders, because that's the group you actually want to tax, it becomes very transparent what you're doing. Right. And they vote. So, I mean, right. now, let me so, caveat that. I mean, now, let me caveat that. There is an argument. By saying there is an argument for corporate taxation. Because it's easier because to collect. Because it's easier to collect to some degree. It could potentially be easier to collect and monitor. Instead of trying to collect right? instead of trying to collect from a bunch of different people, you can collect from a corporation. So there's a collection issue. We are tracking. We're tracking. We are tracking. Yeah. You know, okay. what's funny here is, you know, it, what's funny you know, here I've is, I've never done this before. This is the first time that I've tried to do it completely without visuals, right, without sort of going like in a conversation, like, like, instead of going like as a presentation. If I could give one takeaway, especially about tax and tax policy and what people say about tax policy. Be careful about sound bites. Be careful about sound bites. A lot of because there's a lot of sound bites that people like to throw out to get attention. Let me give you an example. Uh, the first day. Let me give you an example. Uh, the first day of class. I give the students that I give the students that basically article that basically goes after a politician. Specifically, Teresa Hines Carey. When Senator okay. Kerry was when Senator Kerry was running for presidency, where it goes after her for holding and municipal bonds. and I have the students read it, and then I have them read, and then I have them read a more in-depth of understanding of municipal bonds and why municipal bonds are the way they are, how taxes affect municipal bonds. It's a much more robust discussion of mutual bonds. And the reason I do that is because once they read the discussion of mutual bonds, what they realize is the argument made in the press article is completely bogus it's because it's based on, it's based on an assumption about municipal bonds that just isn't true and okay. so to me that and that so to me that that is what i'm constantly trying to get students to think about and think deeper so for example the current now this is my opinion and now this is my opinion the current argument to tax income corporate income based on based on financial statements based on income in the financial statements very that is very, a very difficult very right difficult issue yet, right what i find in the press yes what i find in the press really is that nobody really talks about the difficulty of that right it's sort of this is the proposal and what you don't understand about it is there's a fundamentally 
there is a fundamentally there's a fundamental reason tax income is different than financial income okay yeah okay what's happening right yeah now what's happening right now is it's assumed that the financial income number the number we see on the financial statement right is the right that's a presumption number. it's the right number. right that's a presumption it's the right number and to tax actually and that's actually that's not necessarily true okay. and so what's okay not and so what's not being discussed why is the number that's why financial the number that's reported on our financial statements right number is not the right number right to be taxed throw some, we just right we just throw something we just we throw something out there and the media grabs the sound bite but doesn't go deeper than the sound bite i think your point about assumptions and conclusions I mean, I was is even thinking as you said that i mean margaret, i was even thinking as you said that talked, mary margaret in this we case, talked an assumption in this about case, who bears the an assumption the about who tax. bears the cost of the that corporate tax could fuel that assumption in itself could fuel wildly different takes from wildly different takes from politicians if i assume it's 100 born by shareholders wildly different i'm going to suggest a wildly different tax rate potentially than on the other side of the aisle someone on the other side of the aisle percent of that thinks that 80 percent of that will be translated and born by labor that assumption and where you stand on that assumption and where you stand on that assumption can lead to wildly different conclusions. different exactly. conclusions exactly and uh and uh yeah. i mean just as human yeah i think about this a lot but your point's well founded we crave, we crave simplicity i mean we crave simplicity we i mean presidential debates should we be having presidential debates sound bites? which are a series of sound or bites should we have them each write or should out we have them each page write out a 100 page voters document to, for voters to to read and comb through. You know, it's interesting about what you said. Just said. No, it's but interesting about what you said. Just said. But I, this thing popped yeah, in, which is interesting to know. You know, it would be interesting to know now versus before we had this mass. What, what I would, in my naive perspective, would call a mass shift in how we receive media. Right. Does the movement towards does the movement media towards social media make people more informed? Make people make, more informed. Make people feel not that make, they are make more people feel not that they are more informed, but make them feel more informed. But actually, they're not more informed. But actually, they're not then, more informed. Before, then, so for example, before, before so for example, like social media, before our, like we could social media, data, we could we could access data. At the, the you know, at, thumb, the, right? at the touch of a thumb, right? At the touch of a thumb, right? On our phones did and everything. Did we sort of step back? Did we go, sort of step back and go? I don't feel as committed to a position. I don't feel as committed to a position. I because like, I, I don't know. Like, like and there wasn't information I don't know. Flowing. Like and there wasn't information flowing. flowing. There weren't sound bites so flowing to me. And so I was more cognizant of what I don't know. Willing to be like and so I was more willing to be like I don't know and rely therefore on I, experts. I, I, that can go a bunch of different ways. Yeah, that can go a bunch of different ways. But now so much information. We've got so much information flowing. And there's not and so much of it is not vetted. So much of it is not vetted. So much of it is sound Sound bites. It's sort of hard to know, and it's, an, you're it's sort of hard to know whether you're getting not. valid information you or could, not. There, you know, you the could, could go two there, ways. You know, the hypothesis you could go two ways. That. You recognize and so that. You're less comfortable, and so you're you less comfortable because that you know things because all of a sudden you recognize the information that you're getting is not very vetted. 
Or right. you could feel like, or you could got, feel so like you've got, you're so much more informed you've gotten this information. because you've gotten right. this information. You, you don't, right. You're, you don't, you don't think about where you don't think about where it came from because it's hard to do. And so you feel more empowered that you are more informed, but you're actually not. I've never thought of it that way, but you could I've say never that thought of it that way, that but you could say that there's the a theory that American populace the entire American populace is subject to the Dunning Dunning Kruger subject effect. To the Dunning in, Dunning Kruger effect in politics. In, and we're all in walking politics. around in this and we're all walking this around cloud. in this this cloud. Everything's on topic on Third Coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Final question. Okay. Final question. Okay. What is something? What is something? An agenda, an agenda that to you most that matters to you most at Darden, professionally, broadly. Or, or the first thing that comes to your mind, or, or the first thing that comes to your mind pushing. that you're most passionate about pushing. Yeah. So for me, uh, yeah. So for me, it would be what I call, or many people call, um, cross sector engagement. Cross sector so, engagement. What I mean and so by that is I think what I mean by that is I think it comes from living in a business school, living in a business school and having a tax policy, which is and having a tax policy, which is more of a governmental sort of public sector endeavor, sort of right is endeavor. Balance right, is this between the balance between sector. the private and the public sector? And what's been interesting, and what's been for me interesting as a tax person for me as a tax is person tax in a is when you school, teach tax in a business right? school. Uh, a right? lot of what you engage in, uh, a lot of what you engage in is how is it that businesses are thinking about tax planning, right? And it becomes an us versus them. Do I increase situation? Do I increase shareholder returns, or you know, do I you know? Pay to the government, and, right? And that's a win-lose situation. That's a win-lose situation. It treats everything as a zero-sum game. And what I found and, a lot of times, and in lot of times in engaging sector, in both the public and private that sector, there was a lot of that there was a lot of differences in the language that people use. They have a lot of times they have the same okay. values, but okay. But the way they engage in discussions, the way they talk about things, the assumptions that they come to the table with about each other, start you off in a, in a poor collaborative right. position. And because there's right. this sort of, and because there's this sort of, it's been painted as this adversarial role. And so, and that, that is highlighted specifically in the tax. Highlighted specifically in the tax so area. What I started to and so what is, I started to ask is how is it that if we engaged more with each other and understood each other better, that there would be more room for collaboration. And so we started. And uh, so we started called, uh, this program called called, called the Tri Sector Leadership Fellows Program. It's very small. But for me, um, it was a. But for me, it was a. It was a moment. It was. What I love about it, it was a joint project with a student and, and myself. The other thing and I love about it is that it the other thing I love about it is that it reaches across grounds. So it involves not just Darden so students. So it involves not just Darden students. Uh, it involves uh, graduate students at the law school, obviously, and then graduate students at the public um, policy school. Because I think sometimes um, what happens when because I think sometimes what happens when you get into graduate school, especially professional schools, you get very isolated in what you're doing. Your programs are pretty intense. Right, your programs are pretty intense. They're usually shorter. Four years, right? Two, three. Instead of four years, you have two, three years. And so your bubble becomes really small. And so it was one small step. And so it was one small step 
try and increase to the bubble again. Try so and increase the bubble again. Right? So when, when, when you go to undergrad, right, right. Your, your bubble's really big. And then you right. go into right. the world and work. And then you go into the world and work. And you, your bubbles and become where you work. And some people and people at Darden come from all different places. But then you come back to Darden and your bubble shrinks. You go to the law school, your bubble shrinks. You go to public policy school, it shrinks. And so then you graduate and you go to your different ways. Your bubbles and your bubbles become defined by your your professional and schools. What we wanted to do yeah. and was what we wanted to do was bigger. make those bubbers bigger. Or, you know, um, or cross, you know, or overlap those um, bubbles so that you or overlap those bubbles so that you had a network that included people outside of your professional school. Because when you got out there, you were going to need, need them. So if when you were dealing with issues, so if you are a public policy person, that what we really want you to do is have friends that are in the business world, so that you can, you know, call them up and talk to them and try and understand their perspective. That's through that getting that informal dialogue, understanding different people's positions, that we're going to have a better path towards collaboration. Small step. And this was just one my small step. My hope is it becomes one big step. My hope is it becomes one we'll big plug. step. For any prospective we'll students, that for any prospective students, out. that application goes yeah. out. It's difficult to miss yeah. every year. Yeah, it's difficult to miss. About. Yeah, you asked me what I'm passionate about. It's a small program. It's a small with program, a lot, in my opinion, with a lot. With a lot of in my opinion, with potential. a lot of so potential. I would love. And so I would love over time to see. Uh, to see leaders, business leaders, political leaders, you know, leaders political leaders, profit, you know, leaders not for profit, recognize profit, the importance of it, recognize the importance it, so of it, and support it um, so we can grow it. I just it. really believe um, that that's going really be that that's gonna be to our path, fundamental path to our path as a path forward as a society. A huge issue to tackle. That's a huge we'll issue to tackle. We'll we'll now we'll now I'll pitch it to Harshit for the surprise question that he has cooked up. The surprise question actually. It's a perfect segue. What you just talked about we're all um, in our little bubbles we're all Darden. in our little and bubbles at darden and i know for a fact that a lot of us at darden and all of our classmates and love you and respect you and love you and you've done we know how much you've done for the darden community and so uh, i think it'd be only i think it'd be only appropriate if you had a message for the class of 2021 or maybe you can always just you can always just use your family motto and apply that Garden the, class. I'll give you that. Old garden class. I'll give you that out. No, I, so no. I, so my first would be my family. To answer your right, it would be my family motto. Because that's just you know, if you're gonna have a motto, it should be true in all kinds of circumstances. So I'll give you one practical one. Okay. As true to an accountant. As true to an accountant. An accountant finance person. So the first I always give this advice. So the first I always give this advice. The best thing you can do. The best thing you is can do make sure as you get out is of make sure as you get out of Darden that you create an emergency fund. So practical, right? So practical, right? So when I say an emergency fund, I'm like three to six months of salary. And the reason I say that is because what makes people engage, not all people, but what makes good people engage in bad decisions like they don't have it is they feel like they don't have an out. Right. So if they run into so if they run into a situation at work that they're not comfortable with, that they feel trapped. 
and they can't leave. And right? you never want to feel and trapped. You never want to feel trapped. You don't want to be in this trap. You don't want to be in that, put yourself in those positions. And so the best thing to keep yourself out of those positions is to make sure you have a parachute. So that would yeah. be that would be my practical. So advice, that would be that would be my um, practical number advice. One. Um, number and one. I think. And then you know, I think. Bubbles. You know, bubbles. It's interesting you brought up this like, notion of. Bubbles. It's interesting you brought up this notion of bubbles. I think one of the things. I think one of the things. You go off into the workforce. As you go off into the workforce, really cognizant. You have to be really cognizant about bubbles you get sucked. Is into. the bubbles you get sucked into. And what I mean by that, and is what I mean by that many, is, uh, students many uh, students are going to leave and go work at these elite companies. There's going to be a bubble right. you live in, which is your work bubble, right? And if your work, which is your work bubble, bubble and your personal, and if your work bubble and your personal bubble overlap a lot, then you really don't have two bubbles. You have one bubble, and right? The question then becomes: the question then becomes: Do you become skewed? And so I think that just being conscientious, always being aware that, that the bubble you're in, you're, the your bubble views, you're in, shapes your views. That, so and recognizing that so that you are constantly looking for other with. bubbles to engage with. That's beautiful. And that's <laughs> yeah. perfect. That's beautiful. And that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> that was my surprise question. That was my I surprise question. That was one of the best. <laughs> I loved it. That was one of the best. We got, and I think <laughs> best responses we Bobby got. Parmar and I think and would Bobby Parmar and Ed Freeman would be very proud that personal finance we've somehow linked to personal finance to, to the ability to make ethical decisions. Wonderful advice. Wonderful advice. I hadn't thought about it that way. It's funny you say that though, because to me, that's what's unique about Dart, right? Is that, right? Is that my hope for faculty at Darden is that that is what draws the faculty. That's a unique proposition to Darden. And that that's what draws the community at Darden. The community at Darden. Darden engaged. The bubble. That right. Darden engaged. Going back to the bubble analogy. Right. Going um, back to the bubble analogy. And that um, we shouldn't be and surprised. And we shouldn't when be surprised. The or the when the finance or the accounting or the ops professor engages in that way because that engages in that way because that's what ultimately attracted them to Darden in the first place. I think I'm just going to let I that. Think I'm just going to let that be. We went from the depths of technicality to the to the yeah. realities and the life of, yeah. Yeah. of, of the well, life of that was great, yeah. Mary Margaret. Well, that was great, Thank Mary so Margaret. For Thank you so us. much and for joining I do us. Think and that this will be I the do last think episode that, that this will be the last episode that you and I will be recording yes. as Darden students. Yes. So, congratulations. So, congratulations. We'll be, we'll be <laughs> on the other side very soon. I cannot wait to see. I cannot wait to see where the other side takes you. Amazing. It's really amazing what you all have done here. So I am. I'm just thrilled that you chose to come to Darden. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Boom. Boom. We're done. We're done. Yay. We're done. We're done. Yay. <laughs>